1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you, you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of, out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may them under their, trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much, Pastor Kate. Good morning again, everyone. Today, we are continuing in our series, The Upside Down Kingdom, where we are unpacking the seminal teachings of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this teaching is all about Christ's kingdom, and uh, Christ being a different kind of king, he's going to have a different kind of kingdom. It's going to be one that, when compared to the governments and the kingdoms of our world, is going to appear upside down. And today, our teaching, this passage, is all about how we judge or might, more rightly, how we are not to judge. Now, when I think of some of the biggest critiques lobbed at Christians in our dominant culture, some of the first ones that usually come to mind are what? That Christians are judgmental and hypocritical, right? Those are usually the judgments that get lobbied against us. And in my limited experience, I can sometimes see how that reputation has been earned, right? God knows we've all met some really judgmental and hypocritical Christians, right? Just me? But there are also, I see a lot of really healthy and faithful Christians who aren't really judgmental and hypocritical, but perhaps they're being received that way. They're being taken that way. And I think, uh, you know, when it comes to judgment, we really don't like to be touched with judgment, right? Uh, how many of you have ever used this phrase before, don't judge me, right? And it's usually a, before you do something really deplorable, right? Like, like, I know this is a much larger piece of chocolate cake than I deserve at this moment, don't judge me, right? I'm going to go in for it. We don't like being judged. Um, and I think this word judge, it's so sloppy. I think we kind of have a category issue um, around what it means to be judgmental. And we'll kind of unpack this in the message today. I really don't think that what Jesus is asking of his followers is that we set aside good judgment. I don't think that's what Jesus is asking of us, but rather that we set aside judging in the wrong spirit, the kind of judgment that I think Jesus is asking us to set aside is one of condemnation. Because it's one thing to use good judgment to discern what is good and what is evil. We should be doing that. We should be doing that every day. We're called to do that. But discerning what is good and evil, with the help of the Holy Spirit, very important, rather than judging and condemning someone because of what we deem to be good or evil in their life, these are very different ideas entirely, right? There's a reason why Jesus takes the role of judge of the living and the dead. Because that sort of judgment, the judgment of souls, is way above our pay grade. I don't know about you, but I should not be the judge of the living and the dead. My, my sense of justice is, is found wanting in relation to God's, right? I can't even be, be responsible for judging in my limited capacity down here. 
I, on the drive in here this morning, I'm going to be honest with you folks, I was running a little late and I was speeding, okay? I was speeding a little bit and there was a car in front of me that was not speeding. In fact, they were doing the opposite of speeding. <laughs> they were probably 10, 15 below the limit and I'm like, I'm feeling the, you know, you know, I'm feeling the anxious reactivity in me. I'm like, come on, man, pedal to the metal. I got somewhere to be. And as we're driving by this school, I realize that there's a sheriff parked right in the parking lot, ready to pull out to catch people speeding. And this person that was in front of me probably saw him, clocked the sheriff, and saw me speeding up behind him and thought, buddy, let's not do this today. Let's, let's pump the brakes. Can I be honest? That would have been really bad for me to get a ticket on the way to church on a Sunday morning, right? And this guy, who, else, who knows? Maybe this person driving was actually looking out for me, right? But I judged them so harshly, like, care about where I need to be or about my needs. Like, I judged harshly. So if that's how I judge something like that, who are we to take the role of judge of the living and the dead, of souls of human beings, right? I think sometimes people in our culture think that we Christians are judgmental and hypocritical because maybe the way we go about it sometimes is that we hold ourselves above the mistakes of others as if we have somehow avoided those mistakes ourselves, that we have some kind of moral of superiority and authority to pass verdicts and condemnation on other people, right? Something that used to really bother me growing up, it, you know, when I'd hear someone talking about like a celebrity at church that who had passed away, and they'd casually throw in a phrase like, yeah, well, it's a shame that person's not in heaven or whatever. And I remember thinking like, how do you know how do you know you don't? You're making such a cavalier, passive, big statement about the condition of someone's soul. And you are not the judge of the living and the dead. Those kinds of things bothered me, right? And I think the religious spirit in us can turn us more and more into those kinds of people. And that's, that's a surefire way to repel people away from the gospel because what they're seeing is not really the gospel. It's our version of it, which is falling short of what Jesus actually gives to us. That we act as if we're not equal recipients of God's grace. That we too have not received the kindness, kindness of God, which leads to repentance, right? So there's then this like really harsh judgmental extreme, right? Then there's this other pendulum swinging the other direction. When I relinquish my responsibility to discern good from evil, and I just say things like, well, oh, who am I to say? You know, that's none of my business. I'm not going to get involved. It doesn't really matter to me. And we kind of let things passively go by us without discerning what is good and what is evil. And that's why the Holy Spirit is within us. To help us to discern what is helpful and what is harmful. What causes flourishing and what causes destruction. That's why the Holy Spirit is in us. And when we, when we neglect that, we invite people into a kind of faith which, which lacks conviction. It lacks the sort of redemptive and transformative power that comes from repentance. These things are also really important, Right? The gospel is, is neither of those extremes. Dallas Willard wrote that grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort, right? The forgiveness and grace of God is freely given to us, but the redemptive power of his grace, the, the ability to, to see fruit on the vine in which I abide, that comes and manifests if I obey. If I pick up my cross, I deny myself and I follow him. So there's these two extremes. We deem ourselves holier than thou and we sit in condemnation of others as hypocrites or we set aside Christ's commands to be discerning and to challenge the Jesus follower to repentance. And I think these two extremes boil down to one basic problem, one basic truth for all of us. 
we cannot share with others what we have not received for ourselves. We cannot share with others what we have not received for ourselves. Because if I condemn and judge others harshly, this reveals that I don't truly understand how much grace I have needed in my life. This shows that I am indeed spiritually entitled, spiritually spoiled, that I bring no humility in my relationships, that I don't appreciate what I've been given, right? And the other extreme of just passively letting evil things go by me is that I have not experienced the meaningful transformation that comes from conviction and repentance and challenge. I'm afraid to challenge and call others up to repentance because I'm afraid to face it and rise up to it myself, right? So what is Jesus inviting us into? I think that Jesus wants people in our lives to experience God's grace through us. That we would become the kind of people who have such a keen awareness of Jesus' grace in our own lives that we bring this profound humility to our relationships. That we become the kind of people that others run to when they're in trouble because they know they'll meet the grace of God. Not a hypocritical condemnation, nor a watered-down placation. Because hypocrisy and placation, both of those, are not what you want when you're in trouble, right? Instead, they find the grace of Jesus which is forgiving and loving and full of mercy, and it separates out the evil from our lives so that we may flourish, right? But the problem is, it's hard for us to give that away if we haven't received that for ourselves. We tend to emulate the behavior that we see modeled for us, and sometimes we think we're seeing a behavior that God models for us, and it's actually a misperception. It's actually not how he's behaving towards us. But the good news is that God is as just as he is kind. And his grace and mercy towards us is always far better than any of us could have possibly dreamed or imagined. And when we begin to embrace that, when we begin to accept that, that's when we can begin to be free to give it away. So we're going to unpack this passage sort of section by section, and as we go, we're going to give kind of context to Jesus' day and then reflect on what these truths might mean for us right now. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, as we pray every week, and we mean, we pray that your presence would fill this place, that your spirit would fall afresh on us. Lord, we want all of you, and we would like for you to discern the things in our lives that are keeping us from flourishing. We ask that you would breathe new life into this place, that we would receive your presence, receive you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. So Jesus starts with this teaching, and he says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the same measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Now, the Greek word here for judge is is interesting. It's really versatile. It can be used in a lot of different ways. It can mean to divide out, to evaluate, to sort through, to condemn to judge in a court setting. It's, it's, it's kind of difficult to know what this word means just by seeing the word itself. So we actually need to take into account the context of the surrounding passage. Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged with the same measure that you use. It'll be measured to you. And I want to focus on this word measure. We've heard this word before uh, around, or we've had this idea before around fairness, right? A few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus's call not to live in a way that is retributive, Right, like not to repay evil for evil, not to uh, uh, harm our enemies, but to love our enemies. 
And in that passage, Jesus references the Levitical laws in the Old Testament, and he says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And just a quick review, the idea was that the punishment for a crime needed to be proportionate to the crime itself. So the punishment for a crime could not be more than what the crime was. So if I lost an eye, hence the phrase, if I lost an eye, the punishment could only be that person's eye who caused me to lose my eye. But I couldn't take out both eyes, right? And this was to prevent escalation, right? Um, and, and, and this is how the system worked back then. And so when Jesus starts talking about these measures, these fairness, these standards, this is what they're thinking of. And remember, in Levitical times, it was within my rights, if I wanted to, to demand compensation or punishment for the crime committed against me. But I was not required to demand it. So theoretically, I could forgive the offense and allow the person to go on without punishment, theoretically. And I was also not allowed to carry out that punishment myself. So if I wanted retribution, if I wanted justice, I couldn't just go to that person and perform that punishment myself. Because judgment in my hands is always going to be disproportionate to what was done to me. So I would have to take my case to the court with a witness. And the judge would discern what the punishment would be. And we see this theme carrying over into this passage that we just read. Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged. In the Levitical laws, if I were to judge myself, like to to carry out the judgment on my own and to enact punishment on my own, I would then be under the scrutiny of the court. Now, I would have violated a law for punishing them, for violating the law. Do you see what he's doing here? He's removing from us the role of the judge. He's drawing this legal picture that says, do not condemn others or you will stand condemned because that is not your job. It's mine. I am the judge of the living and the dead, not you. He's taking the role of judge out of our hands. He is the judge of souls, not us. And I think Jesus is suggesting to his followers that they shouldn't be dealing out condemnation and punishment for other sins because we would not want the punishment for our sins in proportion to what we've done. We wouldn't want that. Because we are all equal recipients of God's grace and mercy. We all have not received the punishment that we deserve. If we remember back to the teaching on loving our enemies, we remember that true justice in God's eyes is not just about fairness. It's not about fairness. It's actually about reconciliation. None of us receive what is fair for us to receive because more than the father wanting to say, I told you so, or take that, what the father wants is for us to be reconciled to him. The whole point of justice is not just about retribution. It's about healing. It's about relationships being mended. Jesus is implying that we should judge others the way that we have been judged. Because we have been judged with grace and mercy and forgiveness. Not being repaid for our sins in the measure that we deserve. The prayer that Jesus taught in the last chapter, the Lord's Prayer, right? He says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And I almost wonder if there's kind of this reversal poetry going on. Or what he's saying is, forgive others their debts because you have been forgiven yours. There's almost a call here to judge others the way we have been judged. To judge others the way we have been judged. 
And my brothers and sisters, you and I have been judged most graciously and generously in the eyes of God. Our sins that we have committed have not been held against us. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Paul lays it out pretty well right there. That Jesus was not holding people's sins against them. He offers forgiveness because his ministry is not about fairness and retribution. It's about reconciliation. And now we have been committed that same ministry of reconciliation. We are to give to others what has been so graciously given to us. Now, if you know Jesus and you read Jesus, you know that he is incredibly kind and gracious and merciful, and he is also calling his disciples higher. He is always constantly challenging the sin in their life, challenging their old ways of thinking, calling them to repentance and how they regard one another. His radical acceptance and forgiveness did not come at the expense of repentance, did not come at the expense of conviction and challenge. Even in this teaching, in the sermon, he has some really big challenge that he lays to the people. He says, if you want to flourish in this life, if you want to survive and and flourish in this life, you will build your life on me, the rock. But if you don't, it's like building your life on sand. And when the storms come, your house is going to fall. And here's where the discernment side of judgment comes in. After he talks about measuring, Jesus gives this really humorous analogy of a plank or like a beam in someone's face in their eye, right? And they're pointing out the splinters, the specks in other people's eyes. If you remember when I recited the sermon, I took a broomstick and I just stuck it on my face because it's a humorous picture, right? There's no way for me to know for sure, but I almost wonder if this moment is supposed to be read as playful. Because sometimes we take ourselves really seriously and sometimes some levity and some humor can help us to be more receptive to things like high challenge. But I laugh at myself when I read this because I think, Jesus is doing a really good job describing me. I don't know about you, but it is a lot easier for me to deal with other people's stuff than it is for me to deal with my own. I would much rather spend my time dealing with the specks and splinters than dealing with the beam that's in my own face, right? Now, to be fair, I don't think this is just Christians. I think this is is a lot of people. This is most people that are geared this way. We love to share our opinions, right? We love our opinions, You want to know my opinion on that, right? Most of us have our own personalized online platforms by which we share those set opinions. And other people who have the same opinions can like and comment on those opinions telling me how much they approve of my opinions. Or they can write an essay about how their opinions supersede my opinions. We found ourselves in this generation of keyboard warriors who deem ourselves worthy of burdening others with our immaculate opinions, right? You ever just scroll through the comment section of like any post online anywhere? It's like it can start with something so harmless, like the video of a puppy. And like 35 comments down, people are debating about politics and talking about why millennials are the worst again. And I'm like, I get it. We stink, whatever. Like, why did we go from a video of a puppy and descend into chaos, right? How did we get here? We love our opinions. We put so much weight on them. But how often are you really certain about something and then you've been proven to be wrong? 
or just being proven that this thing that you were so sure about is maybe a little more complicated than you first thought. Maybe a little more nuanced than you thought. You guys ever seen that movie Inside Out from Pixar? Again, this is recommended reading from your pastor, but if you haven't watched this movie, I think it's really powerful. The sequel just got announced. Very fun. Um, if, you don't, if you haven't seen the movie, basically the premise is this. There's this 11-year-old girl named Riley, and the movie takes place in her mind. All of her five core emotions have been given um, anthropomorphization. Ooh, six-syllable word. They've been given um, personalities and their characters in this movie, right? And so there's, there's fear, anger, disgust, sadness, and joy, who's our, our protagonist. And in the story, Joy is stuck somewhere in the brain, and she's trying to get back to headquarters. And so she's with this imaginary friend that Riley has named Bing Bong from her childhood. And they hop on this train of thought to get to the clever. They jump on a train of thought to get back to headquarters. And while they're on this train of thought, there are these crates that they bump into, and they spill out all of these little tiles that say facts and opinions, and they kind of all jumble together. And uh, Joy goes, oh, these facts and opinions look so similar. And Bing Bong says, don't worry, it happens all the time. And they start shoving them back into all the crates no matter where they go. And I think this is what we do. (laughs) We take our opinion as cold, hard fact, as if we know something that other people don't, as if those things could not be challenged. What if? What if I was more focused on the logs in my own eyes? What if my first reflex when it came to judgment was actually to consider myself? At the beginning of this, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who acknowledge their spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who know how much grace they need, who know how much grace they've received, right? Because a person who has embraced the plank in their life, this beam that's sticking out of their face, has seen the path of destruction that it leaves behind, right? They've spent time walking through the crowds, walking through their homes, smacking people in the face, getting stuck in doorways, right? This person has humbly acknowledged and dealt with the beams and planks. One who has acknowledged the bruises on the foreheads of their loved ones. Someone who has sat with Jesus in their own mess. This person will not condemn others because even in their worst moments, they were not condemned by Christ. This person will know how to put on empathy and humility, right? This passage is not about never judging. It's about judging humbly and judging generously. It's about judging others the way we have been judged. Jesus even says here, once you've removed the beam from your own face, then you're free to help your brother with the speck, with the splinter in their eye. The person who has dealt with the plank can look at the speck in someone else's eye and have compassion. A person who has been responsible for the plank has mercy for the speck. This person can see someone struggling and say, I know this looks bad, I know it feels bad, but let me tell you, I've done a lot more. I've done a lot worse. And God's grace has been more than enough for me. So I know it's more than enough for you. And this gets into the heart of how we judge. Conviction correction, a call to repentance, a challenge should always come from a place of compassion, not condemnation. Christ-like judgment should come from a place of compassion, not a place of condemnation. There's this fascinating story, passage in Luke 19, where Jesus, he's, he's approaching the last days before the crucifixion, 
and he's just been accompanied by a bunch of people heading into Jerusalem, right? And they've been shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? And they're celebrating Jesus, the Messiah, come to liberate them in the way that they think he's going to liberate them. And before Jesus enters into the city, he sits and he contemplates Jerusalem. And the scriptures describe him mourning, grieving over the state of Jerusalem. He almost says, you guys don't understand what's coming. The beliefs and the behaviors that you've built from yourself, they're only going to bring destruction. And he prays for the reconciliation of God's people. And guess what happens right after that prayer? He then goes into the temple, and this is where we see Jesus rebuking the moneylenders and the sellers. This is where we see him. That wasn't in this passage specifically, but we hear about Jesus making a whip and driving people out. Jesus' most famous kind of um, uh, correction, it came out of a place of heartbreak. It came out of a place of compassion. Before Jesus levied this call to repentance for others, he first had a place of compassion and heartbreak for them. Jesus' discernment, his judgment, is always done out of a place of heartbreak and compassion, never out of a spirit of contempt. This is why self-examination is so important. The prayer of Psalm 139, right? God, search my heart and know me. Show me the offensive ways in me and the anxious thoughts that I have and lead me in your way everlasting. When I remember the grace of God, when I remember the planks in my own eyes that he has compassionately removed from me, then I can move towards others in compassion and dignity and help them with the splinters. Remember, this is a theme throughout all the scriptures. God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. It's not cut out scripture. Come on. There's this really strange couple of verses that happens right after this <laughs> that a lot of uh, scholars have debated very hotly for a long time. And uh, he talk, Jesus talks about giving to dogs what is sacred, not giving to dogs what is sacred, not throwing pearls to swine. And uh, otherwise they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And at first glance, this verse is like so random. It's like Jesus has talked about not judging people and now we're talking about giving pearls to pigs. What, what are we talking about? And what I found in my research is that there's basically three kind of dominant theories for what Jesus means right here. I'm going to tell you all three. I'll tell you what I think. You can decide for yourself. But the first theory is this. Matthew just had too much to, to, to write about. There were too many good teachings that Jesus had, and so he had to figure out where to fit this little nugget somewhere. So he just shoved it there. Like, okay, that'll work for now. Okay. The other theory is that dogs and pigs, this isn't a theory, I mean, this is true, that dogs and pigs were seen as these unclean kind of pagan animals. This is true. And the theory goes that what Jesus was saying was, these teachings and this wisdom that I'm giving you do not share with the pagans and with the Gentiles yet. Which I can see a case for that, but for me, that kind of flies in the face of a lot of what Jesus is all about. I mean, think about the Samaritans and the woman at the well and the parable of the good Samaritan and Jesus telling people to love their enemies. So that one I wrestle with. The one that I think is probably more likely is one that was, um, I read about from a scholar named Craig Keener. And he says this, he says, even when you are right, do not impose the truth on others. Hmm, even when you are right, do not impose the truth. How did we get there? Okay, well, after I've done the work of repentance and humble self-examination, and I've worked with Jesus on these logs in my eyes, and I've allowed my heart to break and have compassion for others who have specks, then... I'm ready 
to move in love and compassion towards someone else and to offer them this, this gracious gift of correction or challenge. And I think this part of the teaching is actually not shoehorned in. I don't think it's random. I actually think it's directly connected to this thought to remind us that not everyone is going to be receptive to our assistance. When we've done all this work of humility to get to this compassionate place, what we then have is something beautiful, something sacred that we are offering in love because we want to see someone flourish. That's not always going to be received. That's not always going to be taken well. Our spiritual humility is a great gift to the world, but it's not always going to be well-received by the world around us. So sometimes we just have to know that this gift of discernment, it's not for every time and every place and every season. And sometimes people aren't going to receive it and it has nothing to do with you. Perhaps it's the nature of the fact that you're, you're new to them and they don't have context for you. Maybe it's the season that they're in. But sometimes we have to discern whether or not it's the right time whether or not what we offer them is going to be trampled underfoot and they're going to turn on us, right? It's interesting that he uses dogs and pigs specifically. Yeah, dogs and pigs were unclean animals to the Jews, but, but dogs and pigs also have one thing in common that's really, really important. The dogs that were there around the time of the first century, most of them weren't domesticated. Most of them were like wild and stray dogs. So they were kind of dangerous. And did you know that pigs can also be really dangerous? I didn't know this. I'm not a farm. I grew up city, whatever. Okay, so Wizard of Oz. Remember this movie, Wizard of Oz? Remember this movie. Yes, you remember this movie. You've seen it. Okay, so there's this, there's this scene right at the beginning before we move into, into Technicolor, right? So Dorothy is on her farm, and she's walking on the fence where the pigsty is, right? Remember this? And she falls into the pigsty. And everyone starts losing their, like they're freaking out. Dorothy's screaming. They, they run in, they grab her, and they pull her out. And, and one of the guys is like having a heart attack. Like, oh, that was so scary. And as a kid, I'm like, why? She felt like four feet. <laughs> She's okay. And they're pigs. It turns out, I have a friend who's a pig farmer. People have died that way. That pigs, when they're hungry and you fall into their pit, they will actually, they can turn and tear you to pieces. I thought that was fascinating. There you go. I didn't know this. But we've heard this phrase, right? Have you heard this phrase, don't bite the hand that feeds you? You've heard this? Don't bite the hand that feeds you? Why do dogs, stray dogs, bite and attack people that are trying to help them? Right? You've seen these heartbreaking videos of these stray dogs on the side of the street, and they're emaciated, and they're sick, and they're, they're hurt, and someone pulls over and wants to like help this dog and feed them and get them to the vet, Right? And those dogs in those videos will often be really hesitant and sometimes even aggressive. They'll like bite at you and snatch at you when you're trying to help them. Why do dogs do this? Why do dogs attack people who are trying to help them? Well, it's because they've experienced trauma. They've had an experience which tells them that the, hand, the last hand that reached out to me, the last human that got this close to me, beat me, starved me, neglected me. So what you represent to that dog is not a rescue. You're not a savior. You're a threat. Those who are not following Jesus perhaps sometimes have a similar relationship with the church. Why is it that when we, out of a genuine place of care and compassion, when we share the good food that we've been given, get our hands slapped away? Why do we get bit when we're just trying to help? It's because we're perceived as a threat. 
And sometimes it has nothing to do with you. But we have to realize that the church has not been perfect. I love the church. I've devoted my life to the church. But we've made some mistakes. The church has hurt people, right? Not just Red Hills. I mean, the church has hurt people. We've done damage to people in the past. And we have a responsibility as the church living now to have extra grace and patience for those who have been hurt. Because their trauma has informed them that we're a threat. And this could be a long game kind of situation, right? Where we have to build the kind of trust and relational equity to where the pearl that we offer won't be trampled underfoot. But we have to find the right time to do it. Offering to people wisdom that they're not asking for sometimes actually exacerbates the situation. We have to have discernment. We have to know how to handle these moments. There's an old youth pastor's adage that is really cheesy, but it's true. They used to tell, this, tell us this all the time in youth ministry. Kids don't know or don't care about what you know until they know that you care. And it always stuck out to me. It's cheesy, but it works, and it's true. I could get up there. Like, I'm a really good public speaker, you guys. Like, I'm really good at this. And I'm just kidding. But no, I, I would get up there, and I would craft what I thought was like a really, really good sermon, really funny, really awesome. They will not care. <laughs> I've seen it. They do not care unless I've played ping pong with them for 15 minutes before. Until I've let them open up about their home life. Until I've gone to their school and been at their sports, right? Like, if I don't build relational equity, they don't care about what I have to say. That dynamic never changes. When people have been hurt, especially when there's trauma that we have to navigate, we have to earn that trust back. We live in a different age of evangelism today. It's different. We have to change up our strategy. So this is what Craig Keener means when he says, even when you're right, don't impose the truth on others. Because unless that truth is invited, unless that relational space to share that truth has been earned, sometimes it actually shuts the door. And that's not what we want. Now there's, a, there's an aspect of this teaching that I wrestle with, and I, I don't know if I've come to a conclusion on it yet. But I think about Jesus' words. Don't give to dogs what is sacred. Don't give your pearls to swine because they might trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And he, he warns us not to do that. And then I think... That's exactly what happened to him. Jesus offered the world a kind of love and grace and wisdom that we could not fathom. And a lot of people, a lot of people trampled his love and his affection under their feet. And at the end, they did turn and tear him to pieces. They put him to death because they did not want the truth that he had for them. And for this, I don't know what the implication is for us, but I do know that when we do offer our truth and we do offer our love to others, perhaps there's always a risk of that. And we have to be willing to count that cost. And I look to a savior who fought, found that that cost was worth it. That he offered us his love even though he knew that we wouldn't appreciate it in our time, even though he knew that when he did, we would kill him. That's the kind of sacrificial love that Jesus offers us. And through that sacrifice, that's the kind of radical forgiveness and acceptance that he gives you and me. 
So I'm going to ask you to take out your communion elements at this time. And if you are someone who has yet to make Jesus the Lord of your life, I'm really grateful that you're here. And I'm just going to ask that for the moment you hold these symbols in your hand and do not take them at this time. This is something that is reserved for those of us who have made Jesus our Lord. It is a reverent act of worship that is taken very seriously. Because this is a symbol of that love that we just talked about. This is a representation of that kind of love that Jesus shares with you and me. And when we're ready to make Jesus the Lord of our life, we can then receive what he has given. We said something at the beginning of all this, that it is very difficult for us to give away what we have not first received for ourselves. And I think there are many of us in this room who we have a hard time actually receiving this. Actually understanding the weight of what this sacrifice meant. And we deem ourselves unworthy of it or we avoid it. And I think if we're going to move towards others in love, we need to accept it for ourselves. We live in these cycles of shame, these cycles of fear, where we forget the love of God. We forget just how valuable we are to him. That when he calls us to repentance, when he calls us to conviction and to challenge, that it's not because he just sees himself as holier than us. Philippians, Paul writes that it's not because Jesus thought himself of high regard. He didn't use his equality with God to his own advantage. Rather, he gave himself up to death on a cross as a servant to humanity. And Jesus did this for the world, yes. He also did it for you. You, specifically. And I really do believe that if you were the only person on the planet and it came to that, he would have done the same thing all over again. Because we are his prized possessions. And so when we take these elements, we remember that Christ gave of his body and his blood out of his great love for us, out of compassion for us, to draw us back to himself. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're going to take some time, just a few minutes, to sit and reflect in what ways have you neglected to receive the grace and love of God in your life? And a good way to tell is maybe to look at your own judgment. Do you harshly condemn others around you? If you're quick to do that, perhaps it's because you believe God is quick to do that with you, to harshly condemn you. In this moment, reflect on the nature of God. The fact that everything he does, he does out of a place of compassion and mercy. And receive that love for yourself. As you have just taken communion, receive his sacrifice. 
and make that your own so that you can share it with others. Let me pray for us. Lord, we sit before you now and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would breathe an awareness of your love, that we would receive your grace. We love you.